0: jcasnetwork.org
1: Hello and welcome to Daily Dot Differently. Jeremy Kalmanofsky here with you. Let's learn Tractate Yoma, page 34. On the A side of the page, on the A side, we continue our conversation of yesterday uh, of going through the order of things in the ancient temple. Obviously we don't do those sacrifices anymore, but in this case we do have one contemporary halakhic application. In the course of an animal sacrifice, you heard that there were, in addition to the animal itself, uh, mincha unesachim, grain-based offerings and wine-based offerings that came with the animal, and after you did the animal itself, then there was, then there was the, uh, the, the grain offering, and then later there was the nesach, nesachim, the wine offerings, and that together a whole package, and the animal, and the sacrifice isn't completed until all that is done. On our page today, it records that Abaye said yesterday, uh, nisachim kodmin la, la musafin, that the wine offerings in the order of things come before the musaf, the, if there's an additional sacrifice for Shabbat or Yom Tov, the shacharit, the tamid shal shacharit, the daily offering, uh, with a whole package of associated accoutrements, like the wine offering, come before musaf. Well, this has a halakhic application for practice, Jewish practice now in the 21st century. I'm sure this has never happened to anyone, but theoretically let's imagine that somebody came late to synagogue, the congregation had already recited shacharit, and you personally have not, but when you arrive, let's say it's the Torah reading or whatever, uh, you have not yet prayed your personal Shaharid Amida, but the congregation is now ready to say, musaf. what should you do? Should you do it in the disrupted order and say your Musaf Amidah, though you have not yet said Shahari Amidah, or vice versa. Should you say uh, that that would thereby enable you to play, pray Musaf with the congregation, or should you vice versa say that because the proper order to do this thing is to say Shahari Amidah first and then say Musaf, you will fo- follow that your own personal self. And though you might not be saying the same words as the person who's davening next to you, you will, while, you, while everyone's saying the Amida, you'll be saying the Shacharid Amida, and they'll be saying the Musaf Amida. In fact, based on our Marat today, Nesachim, Kodmin la Musafin, finish up the whole Shaharid assemblage before you say Musaf. The best thing is that you should say your Shaharid first, uh, and even if, even if that means you're davening different words than the person next to you in the silent prayer, you should say your Shaprid Amidah first before you go ahead and say your Musaf Amidah. However, says the the Shulchan Aruch with the emendations of Rabbi Moshe Israeli, the Ashkenazi authority, that if you did it the other way and if you went ahead and said Musaf with the congregation, you would in fact have fulfilled your uh, you would have in fact fulfilled your obligation Bedeavad uh, ex post facto. Not ideal, but okay. Now, sometimes you'll find a page that is really, really short. Really, really short on Gemara, and that's true of our next page, 35. And the reason there's so little Gemara is that there's such a gigantic, massive, tosafot commentary printed on the page. It's long, long, long. You, know, you almost ever never see one so long that covers almost two whole pages. What they're going to argue about is the item at the bottom of our 34b page. which says that if the high priest was particularly infirm, he was uh, not a hale and hearty guy, he was an old guy, what they would do when he would have to make his five immersions is that they would have heated up from before the ho- holiday began, they heated up these big iron uh, pieces, you know, hunts of metal, and they would throw these hot pieces of metal into the, into the mikveh so as to warm it up so he was, didn't, you know, didn't freeze, he wasn't a polar bear, uh, and he, he needed a little bit of an easier treatment or more gentle treatment. But this brings up a major question of Shabbat law. In this case, Yom Kippur is the same as, as Shabbat. If you have hot metal and you throw it into cold water, you will anneal it, you will cool it off and harden it, and that is a forbidden labor. Okay. So this brings us to one of the major halachic disputes brought up numerous times over the course of the Talmud. If you were with us uh, during Tritate Shabbat, you saw it a few times. Uh, the question of Davar She'enom Kaven the unintentional uh, act of work. Clearly, in this case, why they heated up those rods of metal before Shabbat and why they were throwing them into the mikvah now on Yom Kippur was not to anneal metal, was not to make better metal so that you could, you know, sell it or make something else out of it. The point wasn't the metal. The point was to warm up the water on behalf of the Kohen Gadol so he could do a better job. That is what's called davarsha eno mitkaven, an unintentional act. To rehearse with you or, or tell it to you the first time, the major dispute is that Rabbi Shimon says that unintended unintended work on Shabbat is fundamentally permitted. So for example, if you drag a bench, this is the, the classic example, you drag a bench across soft ground, if it makes a little furrow that would be suitable for planting, you weren't you weren't trying to plant. You weren't trying to, to plow the earth. You were just trying to bring the bench over to sit down and have lunch. That is fundamentally permitted. Rabbi Yehuda, his his interlocutor, says no. Uh, even if you did work accidentally, it's still forbidden. The way the to summarize how this is decided in Jewish law, uh, I would note that Rabbi Shimon is his position is accepted as law. If you do not intend a certain result and it just happens to be the ancillary byproduct of an otherwise permitted action then rabbi shimon's view rules and there's no reason not to do that otherwise permitted action however if the uh, outcome is the inevitable the inevitable consequence of the what would appear to be otherwise permitted action rabbi Hu's position rules and quite logically so uh, the act the act becomes the otherwise permitted act becomes forbidden because if you know for a hundred percent certain that the outcome is going to be a forbidden act you can't say well i didn't intend that outcome to be uh, of course you intended it you took an act knowing full well what the outcome was was going to be so that's called seek ratio shorthand for the spicy saying can you cut off a chicken's head without it dying no if, if you know for certainty that the uh that the consequence is going to be a forbidden act then that becomes forbidden so that appears on our page we re, we relate that Rabbi Yehuda says, They would heat up the iron rods, and they would throw them in the cold water, so that they would temper its coldness. But then the Gemara asks, But aren't you then uh, hardening the metal? And we have a couple of answers to that objection. Rabbi says, Well, in that case, the rods weren't so hot, that if you threw them in the cold water, the metal would anneal, and Abaye comes along and says, actually, let's even say that it's okay. Uh, let's even say that, that they were that hot. And the hardening of the metal would occur. This is a davar she'en mitkaven; It's an unintentional act and therefore permitted. But wait, the Talmud comes along and says, we know from other sources. Uh, this is really the, the classic source that Abaye takes the position, according not with Rabbi Shun, but with Rabbi Yehuda, that says... That, uh, that, uh, that an unintended act is in fact forbidden. And Abai's answer, or the Talmud on behalf of Abai's answer, uh, is that with a Torah prohibition, one is legislated by the Torah itself, one should view, in his view, with Rabbi Yehuda, that unintended actions should remain forbidden. But in this case, this kind of derivative way of hardening metal is a merely rabbinically legislated prohibition and therefore should be uh, permitted in this case. Now, one last point on this, because we we'll go gone at great length, as I mentioned, part, partly to summarize all of the, the various views here, but also uh, one of the things that they raise is that there's a different uh, or an amended text or an alternative text that raises the idea that the reason this rabbinically uh, forbidden act of, of annealing metal in cold water should be permitted in the temple, is Ein shvut there are no rabbinic prohibitions in the temple itself, because the priests were so scrupulous, they didn't need those extra rabbinic prohibitions. And that is, in fact, the citation that Maimonides has in his code on this very question. His text read, Ein shvut there is no need for rabbinic uh, uh, legislation in the temple, However, both Tosafoda and Rashi disagree with that text. It's interesting to keep in mind, and it's always, always, uh, you know, relevant, often relevant, to note that uh, the, the, the Medievals didn't necessarily have our printed text. They sometimes varied their text. Okay, thanks for learning this material with me. I'll be away for a couple of weeks, and then uh, with other teachers we'll be on, and then I'll be back with you in a few more weeks. Bye-bye.
0: I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently. And that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is "Ufros" from the Epicorus album "One Bead," available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.